Yes, uh, hello and uh, welcome uh, to tonight's event. I'm sorry, it, uh, it, we're running a little bit late. Uh, our guest speaker got uh, caught in rush hour uh, London. My name is uh, Eric Neumann and I'm going to chair tonight's um, event. Um, the guest speaker is no other than uh, Thomas uh, Friedman. In the interest of time, I'm gonna keep my introduction very, very uh, short. He, um, he needs uh, very little introduction. He's one of the world's best known uh, journalists. I wanted to say the, the best known uh, writer for the New York Times, but yesterday's Nobel Prize for <laughs> Paul Krugman <laughs> may have changed the odds there. Uh, Thomas Friedman is here to um, talk about and sign uh, his book, if you wish to buy a copy, Hot, Flat, and Crowded. It makes a number of very interesting uh, points about climate change and America's role in um, what could be the biggest uh, challenge of our, our generation or perhaps this century. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I want to say many things. We are running late. Uh, I will Let's just, just uh, I'll just, we'll just start. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much for coming out, and I apologize for being late. I, w I was caught in traffic. Um, my wife went to the LSE. Uh, she got her master's degree here uh, 30 years ago. We're actually celebrating our 30th anniversary, so it's a treat to, uh, to be here with you this afternoon. Can everybody hear me okay? Up there? Great, thank you. So um, I'm gonna talk this evening about my book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded. Um, I know some of you have read it. Those of you who haven't, uh, I know who you are. Um, uh, this book um, masquerades as a book about energy and environment. I say it, it masquerades because it, it's, really, uh, it's really a book about America. Um, and uh, my own concerns and worries that my country has lost its groove. Uh, in many ways, this book is about how I think America can get its groove back. So I won't, I won't lie to you. This is not a European book. It's not an Asian book. This is a very America-centered book in many ways. Um, the PowerPoint is here. They said something about a down arrow. <laughs> Next. Uh, here we go, someone who knows. That? Okay, perfect. So this is actually a billboard that appeared in South Africa last year to advertise the Daimler smart car, 4-4 car. For those of you who can't read it, it says German engineering, uh, Swiss innovation, American nothing. And um, that billboard pisses me off, basically. <laughs> um, it, it pisses me off, but it also, it really reflects a, a, a sense out there um, that we had lost our groove, that someone actually thought they could sell more cars by advertising German engineering, Swiss innovation, and American nothing. Why have we lost our groove? Well, I think it's really a combination of things. The first is 9-11. And that's why this book, although it's about energy and environment, actually starts in a very unusual place. It actually starts in Istanbul, Turkey, in 2004. Because I was uh, visiting Istanbul, I had gone to see the US Consul General in Istanbul, and I had an appointment right when I arrived. Flew in, went to my hotel, really dropped my bags off, 
told the driver to take me to the US consulate. Uh, I knew it was just a few minutes away because our consulate for 125 years had been located in the very heart of Istanbul amid the mosques and the bazaars where Turks could easily drop in. And he said, I'm sorry that the consulate's moved. I said, where did it go? He said, after 9-11, it moved to a suburb, Estinia, about 45 minutes away. I said, oh my god, get in, let's go. We got out to Estinia, and there I beheld the new post-9-11 US consulate. Uh, 12-foot high walls, barbed wire, guard towers. It was a maximum security prison. It basically said to the Turkish visitor, go away. Go away. All visitors welcome. Go away. I got inside. I sat down with the consul general. I said, what, what is this place? You could have filmed the Turkish prison movie Midnight Express here. What is this place? And he said, well, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, there are a lot of American diplomats who are alive today because of those high walls and guard towers. Because six months earlier, as many of you will recall, Turkish terrorists blew up the British consulate in Istanbul and the HSBC bank, killing the British consul, 30 other people, wounding 400 others. And afterwards, Turkish police captured several of the terrorists. And um, one of them, in interrogation, said, we actually wanted to blow up the new US consul. But it was so secure, they don't even let birds fly there. It was so secure, they don't let birds fly there. And the first chapter of this book is called where birds don't fly. Because where birds don't fly, people don't mix, ideas don't get exchanged, collaboration doesn't happen, friendships don't get forged, freedom ultimately doesn't ring. And that's really what has bothered me so much about America after 9-11. We got out of the business of exporting hope and into the business of exporting our fears. And that really is not who we are. Now, don't get me wrong, we live in a world, unfortunately, where we need metal detectors. We, we have real enemies. That's not what bothers me. I'd go through 15 metal detectors at Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., where I live, on one condition, that on the other side of the last metal detector was a great project worthy of America's inspirational and innovative capacity, and not just another metal detector. That's what's bothered me since 9-11. We are not the United States of fighting terrorism. We are not the United States of fighting terrorism. I, I weep. I truly weep for everyone killed on 9-11. But for me, 9-11 is still just the day between 9-10 and 9-12. My day's the 4th of July. That's what our day has to be about. And we've gotten away from the 4th of July and way too much 9-11 over and over and over. Second reason we've lost our groove is we lost our competitor, Soviet Union. Competition is important, it keeps you sharp. What would the LSE be without Oxford? What would, <laughs> what would Oxford be without Cambridge? I mean, everybody needs a competitor. We lost ours, and when we did, we got a little fat, dumb, and lazy. We, we fell into a mode of what I call dumb as we want to be. Dumb as we, and we'll get to it when we get to it. We're, we're America. We'll, we'll get to it when climate, we'll get to it when we get to it. Lastly, and most disturbingly, our government doesn't work anymore. I'm not here to make cheap points about the US government. This is a really serious issue. Our government today cannot organize itself to face any big multi 
generational challenge. Whether it's called healthcare or social security or immigration or climate and energy. And it's the result of a combination of gerrymandering of political districts, of money in politics, of 24-hour news cycles, and a permanent presidential campaign. And the combination has come together in a way that we simply cannot solve big problems anymore. I used to say, well, at least in a crisis we can do it. And then this financial crisis came along. And I wondered if even in a crisis we can do it anymore. Now, this is about my 25th lecture on this book in 25 days. Most of them have been in the United States. And it's been a fascinating experience, because I've been all over the eastern half of the country. And I've been to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Miami of Ohio, and Oklahoma City, and Atlanta, and Texas. And every night, I come back to my room, and I empty out my pockets of business cards. Because what's really good about America, what's so great about America, is that the innovative entrepreneurial capacity of this country still exists. It's exploding from below. And I see that. People give me their cards. I'm starting a solar company. I'm starting a wind company. I'm starting a cellulosic company, an energy efficiency company. I've got a duck. It paddles a wheel, blows up a balloon, issues methane, turns a turbine, creates electricity. I hear the craziest stuff, OK? And it, it actually leaves me very excited. There's enormous innovation coming from below. But we don't have a government today that is maximizing that innovation at the speed, scope, and scale we need given the challenge we face. That's why I tell people, if I were to draw a picture of America today, the picture would be of the space shuttle taking off. You see the space shuttle taking off. All this thrust coming from below. But in our case, the booster rocket is cracked and leaking energy. And the pilots in the cockpit are fighting over the flight plan. And as a result, we can't achieve escape velocity. We can't achieve escape velocity to get into the next orbit. And that orbit is what I call ET, energy technology, the ET revolution. What this book really argues is what red was to America of the 1950s, anti-communism, this kind of all-encompassing idea around which we organized our roads and our scientific research and our university building and military, education, infrastructure. What red was to America in the 1950s, green needs to be to America today. Unfortunately, this administration is taking us from red to code red. And we need to go from red to code green. And that's what this book is about. Why do we need to go from red to code green? Because the world, backwards, the world is getting hot, flat, and crowded. I am the most non-technological person in the world, I have to warn you. I talk the talk of technology. I do not walk the walk. So I hope I can get through this PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> what do I mean hot, flat, and crowded? What's that about? So hot, of course, is global warming. The fact that global average temperatures have risen since 1750, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, almost one degree centigrade, getting on the way one and a half to two degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I know what you're thinking. I get this from every audience. You mean all that Al Gore stuff? All that Al Gore stuff is about two degrees Fahrenheit? That's right, it is. Because you know the climate system is a lot, it's a lot like your body, actually. When your body temperature goes from 98.6 to 100.6, 
you don't feel so good. And if it goes from 100.6 to 102.6, you go to the hospital. The climate system is just as sensitive to nonlinear changes in global average temperature. And we'll talk about that a little more in a second. Flat, what's flat? Flat's just my metaphor for the rise of middle classes all over the world that are beginning to consume and produce like Americans. From India to China, from Brazil to Eastern Europe. There are too many Americans there. The good Lord didn't design this planet for this many Americans. <laughs> and unless we, the original Americans, redefine what it means to live like an American in more sustainable ways, we're going to burn up, choke up, heat up, and devour up this planet with this many Americans so much faster than anyone realizes. Crowded, crowded is just population growth. We're in 2008. By the year 2020, that's just 12 years from now, there's going to be another billion people here by the early 2020s. Another billion people. You know, if you go to Google and you put in your birthday and hit I'm feeling lucky, you can actually find out how many people were on the planet the year you were born. So I did that. I put in July 20, 1953, hit I'm feeling lucky, and it told me that the year I was born, there were 2.681 billion people on the planet. There are 6.2 billion today. Then if you go to the UN website for population and draw your finger out to 2053, if I live to be 100, keep working out, eating yogurt, and live to be 100, <laughs> it tells me that in 2053, there'll be 9.2 billion people on the planet. That means in my lifetime, the population of the planet will have more than tripled and more people will be born between now and when I die in 2053 than were here when I was born. The world is getting hot, flat, and crowded. And the argument of this book is that these three flames, basically, came together to create a huge fire right around the time of the millennium. And this fire is now driving five global Metatrends, call them, for lack of a better term. And I believe these five problems, these five issues, are actually going to determine the stability or instability of the 21st century. Our ability to address these problems is really going to determine whether we make it on this planet or not. So let's go through them. The first is energy and natural resources supply and demand. This is everything from the demand for uh, oil, fuel, food, everything from steel to cement. Everything that falls under energy and natural resource supply and demand, we see going up with an upward trend line. I call that chapter in the book, Too Many Americans Are Carbon Copies. They've become our carbon copies. Now, one way I like to illustrate this is with an anecdote. One of the best parts of my job is people send me stuff all the time. One of the people who I worked with a lot in this book was a guy named Dave Douglas. And he's the chief sustainability officer for Sun Microsystems. And Dave was noodling around one day, and he emailed me. He said, you know, I was just thinking, we're going to have another billion people here by 2020. So what would happen if we gave each one of the next billion people just one 60-watt incandescent light bulb? After all, everybody should have their own light bulb. Each bulb doesn't weigh much, Dave wrote me, roughly 0.7 ounces with the packaging, but a billion of them together weighs around 20,000 metric tons, or about the same as 15,000 
Toyota Priuses. Now let's turn them on. If they're all on at the same time, that would be 60,000 megawatts. Luckily, the next billion will only use their bulbs four hours a day on average, so we're down to 10,000 megawatts at any moment. Yikes. Looks like we'll need 20 or so new 500 megawatt coal-burning power plants so the next billion people can each turn on just one light bulb four hours a day. That's what happens when flat starts to meet crowded. Another example I like to give is, right when I was working on the book a year ago, I visited two cities you may never have heard of. Um, one was Doha, Qatar, and the other was Dalian, China. I was on my way to the Gulf. I've been a frequent visitor to Doha for the last 20 years. Doha is the capital of Qatar, a small peninsular state in the Persian Gulf on the east coast of, off the east coast of Saudi Arabia. I've been a regular visitor, I say, for 20 years, but I hadn't been there for three years. I landed in Doha a year ago, got off the plane in the, in the evening, friends met me, drove me to downtown Doha. I looked around, and I said, that's Manhattan. You sprouted Manhattan since I was here last. The city had a skyline that had burst from the desert like wildflowers after a flash flood, glass and steel skyscrapers, all lit up, all air-conditioned, just like ours. They sprouted Manhattan in three years. I came home, kissed my wife, changed clothes, repacked, and went off a few days later to Dalian, China. I've also been a frequent visitor to Dalian, because Dalian is the outsourcing capital of China, the Bangalore of China. I spent a lot of time there working on the world is flat. I got off the plane there. They already had a Manhattan. They had sprouted another in the three years since I had been there. So I came home and I said to my wife, I said, you know, honey, so great, you know, we have a hybrid car, the neighbors have all got hybrid cars, it's wonderful. Doha and Dalian, two cities you've never heard of, ate that for breakfast. Oh, it's wonderful that in Montgomery County, where I live in Maryland, they've passed a new ordinance about much more energy efficient home building insulation. Dohan Dalian ate that for lunch. Oh, I know what you're thinking. You're all very proud of yourselves, as you should be, because you went home and changed all the bulbs in your dorm or apartment from incandescence to CFLs. God bless you. Dohan Dalian snacked on that before dinner like so much popcorn. And that's just two cities you've never heard of. My friend Tom Burke, who runs a wonderful environmental NGO over here, has created a new unit of measure. He calls it the Americum. And Americum is any 300 million people in the world living like Americans. Now, when I was born in 1953, there were two and a half Americums in the world. There was America, Western Europe, and Japan. Today, there are nine. There's an Americum in America. There's now one in Western Europe. There's now one in Eastern Europe and Russia. There's an Americum in India, giving birth to another. There's an Americum in China, giving birth to another. There's one in Japan and East Asia, one in Latin America. We've gone from a world of two and a half Americums to nine Americums. And the energy and natural resource supply and demand implications of that are going to be enormous. Now, the next issue is something I call petro-dictatorship. Sorry, you didn't mean to do that. Petro-dictatorship. Let me just get that one. Yeah. 
um, which I like to illustrate with this graph that I created. I call this the, the first law of petropolitics. And it's really to show the correlation between the price of oil and the pace of freedom. This started on the back of a napkin, and I eventually turned it into a journal piece for the for Foreign Policy magazine, and I have elaborated on it in the book. Basically, what I did was I graphed the average price of oil, OPEC oil, from 1979 to 2006. Now, if you graph, this is very rough, but this is what it looks like. This is the bottom thick black line, the price of oil. It's round numbers, $80 in 1979, the year of the Iranian Revolution. Falls down to $16 in 1995. Actually, it got close to 10 in 1991. 1991, 1991. What happened in 1991? Why the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991? Must have been an accident. Anyways, we'll go on now. Um, about $16 there, and then goes back up to $80 in 2005. Then what I did is I went to Freedom House, and Freedom House does a freedom index. Um, they measure freedom uh, by free and fair elections held, magazines open and closed, new parties started or, or not, women's groups and NGOs begun. They call it the Freedom Index. And I got the Freedom Index for four countries, what I call four petrol estates, states that are almost totally dependent on oil revenues for their GDP, Iran, Venezuela, Nigeria, and Russia. And I just overlaid the Freedom Index to see what it would look like on the price of oil. And darn, the Freedom Index is the light gray line at the top. Darn if it didn't look like that for those countries. I actually break each country down in the book. Well, what does that tell you? That tells you what I call the first law of petropolitics, that the price of oil and the pace of freedom operate in an inverse correlation in petrol estates. As the price of oil goes down, the pace of freedom goes up. And as the price of oil goes up, the pace of freedom goes down. Now, you actually know this without any of this wizardry. After all, my president, George Bush, five years ago, when oil was around $30 a barrel, looked into Vladimir Putin's soul. And he saw a good man down there. <laughs> At $30 a barrel, I bet there was. But um, <laughs> you look into Putin's soul today at $130 a barrel, you'll see Gazprom, Lukos, Izvestia, Pravda, the Russian parliament, and lately Georgia. Oh, $30, $40 a barrel back in the 90s, Iran elected Khatami as prime minister. He called for a dialogue of civilization. Today, at $100 a barrel, it's a little less today, we got Ahmadinejad, and he says the Holocaust is a myth. Well, I have a corollary to the first law of petropolitics. It says that at $20 a barrel, the Holocaust is never a myth. That's just nonsense you can afford at $120 a barrel. Now, you may think that this doesn't correlate to the real world, but I'll just give you one country example, and that is this. I always like to do this quiz with people. Which was the first Arab Gulf state to discover oil? Bahrain. Which was the first Arab Gulf state to start running out of oil? Bahrain. Which was the first Arab Gulf state to hold a free and fair election where women could run and vote for parliament? Bahrain. Which was the first Arab Gulf state to sign a free trade agreement with the United States? Bahrain. Which was the first Arab Gulf state to hire McKinsey to overhaul its labor laws? Because people were going to have to work in wholly new ways. Say it with me now, Bahrain. I don't think that's an accident any more than I think it's an accident that the Arab state that has been the longest, albeit flawed and troubled democracy, Lebanon, is the one that never had a drop of oil. 
the price of oil and the pace of freedom are intimately connected. Go back to our chart. Sorry. Third issue is climate change. I call this chapter in my book Global Weirding. Global Weirding. Because global warming really does not capture what we're experiencing. I have to tell you, global warming to a kid from Minnesota, that sounds like golf in February, okay? <laughs> All right. That doesn't sound like a bad thing to me. No, I prefer Hunter Lovins from the Rocky Mountain Institute term global weirding, because what actually happens with climate change is the weather is going to get weird. It already is. The hots get hotter. The dries get longer. The wets get wetter. The rains get heavier. The snows get thicker. That's what actually climate change represents. This nice, gentle-sounding thing called global warming doesn't capture it. Now, I actually begin this chapter with two questions that I've raised. One is, and they're really what interests me, because I'm not a scientist. What interests me is really the philosophical questions raised by climate change. And so I begin this chapter with two questions. One is, who made it hot? And the other is, doesn't Al Gore owe us all a big apology? Well, what's that about? So who made it hot? came out of a discussion I was having with Professor Nate Lewis, a great energy chemist at Caltech, one of my teachers. And I was out visiting Nate. We were having lunch in the faculty club there. The specialty of the house is pink lemonade. Nate was swilling his lemonade, and I was badgering him, Nate, what was it about Katrina that bothered us so much? And he thought about that for a second. And finally, he said, who made it hot? Who made it hot? First, I didn't understand, and then I got it. What Nate was saying was, you know how you go to your home insurance policy, and you look, and there's that asterisk in there, and you look down at the bottom of the page, and the asterisk says, all this insurance applies except in the event of an act of God. Except in the event of an act of God. And what Nate was basically saying is that we humans have introduced so much CO2 into Mother Nature's operating system, we no longer know the difference between an act of man and an act of God. Did we make it hot? Or is he making it hot? Did we make Katrina? Or is he making Katrina? We don't know anymore. When I grew up, again, in Minnesota, if we had a warm day in February, we said, what a gift. What a gift. Now, when I came home to my driveway in Washington, D.C. in February, and the daffodils had bloomed because it was almost 80 degrees, I say to my wife, not what a gift. I say, did, did we prepay for that gift? Will we postpay for that gift? Who's making it hot? We don't know anymore because we are playing lead electric guitar now in Mother Nature's symphony orchestra. And that gets to the second question. Doesn't Al Gore owe us all a big apology? Last year at the Davos World Economic Forum, this was really fun. I got to moderate a discussion between Bono and Al Gore. Okay. So cool. Okay. I got so much juice with my girls from that, I can't tell you. And afterward, 
It was really just a whim. I said to the vice president, because we were going together to another event, I said, you know, Mr. Vice President, you'll pardon the temerity, but I think you need to write a column. You need to write a column, and if you'll pardon me, I think I know what the lead should be. The lead should be, I'm sorry. I apologize. I, Al Gore, completely underestimated climate change. Oh, that would get your attention. You see, while all the climate deniers and skeptics have been yelling at Al Gore, telling him how stupid and wrong he was, if you actually look at the science, it's gone so far beyond what Al Gore was warning about. Just take Arctic sea ice. When the IPCC report came out, they first talked about all the Arctic sea ice melted in summer by 2050. And a few months later, it was 2040, then 2030. Last month, latest projection, 2012. 2012, come July, you'll be able to sail right across the North Pole, and there'll be no ice there. No ice reflecting the sun back, just those rays hitting and warming the water. That's how quickly these models have been changing. Well, everyone's been yelling at poor Al Gore. Actually, the science has leapt way ahead. You know, there's a lot of good things about improved health care. But as my friend Joe Rahm says, the best about it is that all the climate deniers are going to live long enough to see how wrong they were. You know. <laughs> Unfortunately, we'll be here with them. That's ice melt from the Greenland ice cap. I was just there a couple months ago. 1992 to 2002. In the summer of 2007, Greenland, through melting and breakage off from the ice cap, lost twice the amount of ice of all the European Alps. It rained last Christmas in Ilulisat. No one in Ilulisat remembers the last time it rained on Christmas Day. So the climate you know, skeptics, they've been telling us Hey, it's dice, and dice can only come up 2 and 12. Gore says it's 12. We say it's 2. No, no, no. These are polyhedral dice we're playing with, like in Dungeons and Dragons. They can come up 2 and 12, 2 and 20, 2 and 40, 2 and 60, 2 and 80. We have no idea what the outside boundaries of these dice can be once you start getting nonlinear changes. And hence my suggestion to the vice president to draw people's attention to it. Why don't you finally apologize? for underestimating climate change. That might get people focused on where the science really is. <laughs> um, he thought about it. Um, <laughs> the next problem I just call 1.6 billion. This is the problem of energy poverty. 1.6 billion, what's that number? That's the number of people in the world who have no on-off switch in their life. That's right, more than one-fourth of the planet has no connection, regular connection, to a network grid. I call them the energy poor. Last year, all of sub-Saharan Africa, except South Africa, generated about one new gigawatt, a billion watts, of new electricity. China generates a new gigawatt of electricity roughly every two weeks. So China today is generating every two weeks the same amount of electricity as all of sub-Saharan Africa, excluding South Africa, does in a year. Now, energy poverty was always problematic, but in a world that is hot, flat, and crowded, you do not want to be energy poor. 
If you don't have electricity to drill a deeper well when the hots get hotter, that's going to be really problematic. If you don't have electricity to turn on even a fan when the hots get hotter, that's going to be a problem. And most of all, if you don't have electricity, you can't get to Google. And if you can't get to Google, you can't get access to all the world's knowledge. And if you can't get access to all the world's knowledge, you will fall behind, not arithmetic, you'll fall behind exponentially. So being energy poor today is going to be devastating. Now, I first started thinking about this on a trip to India last year. I was visiting a group of villages in northeast Andhra Pradesh where some friends of mine were running an NGO set of health clinics. We went to this one health clinic, very small building in the village. I tell about it in the book. And I came in, there was this very elderly in Indian gentleman laid out on a table, just in his underwear. He must have been in his 80s. And he was connected to an EKG machine. And next to him was a nurse. And next to her was a television set where a doctor in Bangalore was doing a remote diagnosis. And I looked at that and I thought, that is so great. The world is flat. I knew it. They would tell him that's great. Then I looked over in the right-hand corner and I saw the whole thing was being powered off 16 car batteries. That's what energy poverty looks like. And in a world that's hot, flat, and crowded, being energy poor is going to be a huge challenge for one out of four people on the planet. Now, the last issue on my list is biodiversity loss. We are in the middle of a mass extinction phase that is currently running a 1,000 times the norm. Mass extinction of plant and animals in a world that's hot, flat, and crowded. According to Conservation International, a new species now goes extinct once every 20 minutes. And I call this chapter in the book The Age of Noah because it starts in two Chinese zoos. One zoo where the last two giant soft-shell turtles, the last two, are being kept alive. One is a male, one is a female. One is 80, the other is 100. And they're trying to get them to mate. Not so easy. Those two turtles, to me, represent our age, the age of Noah. We are the first generation of humans who are going to have to actually think like Noah. We are the first generation of humans who are actually going to have to have a strategy for saving the last two pairs. Because we are going to meet the last two pairs of more and more species in our lifetime. As E.O. Wilson says, the great biologist, it's what we're doing today. What we're doing today is the equivalent of burning all the great paintings in the Louvre just to cook dinner. That's what we're doing in biodiversity terms. So those are the five big problems. Energy, natural resource supply and demand, petrodictatorship, climate change, energy poverty, and biodiversity loss. Now, there's several ways to look at those problems. One is a list of impossible problems. I look at them the way John Gardner looks at things. I look at them as incredible opportunities masquerading as impossible problems. Because what's really exciting about those five problems, let's see if I can go backwards even. What's really exciting about these five problems, and what's really unusual about them, they all have the same solution. 
abundant, cheap, clean, reliable electrons. Whichever country, company, or community can come up with a source of abundant, cheap, clean, reliable electrons will actually be able to dramatically ease energy and natural resource supply and demand, eliminate petrodictatorship, mitigate climate change, hugely lessen energy poverty, and I think dramatically slow biodiversity loss. What does that say? What that says to me is that the search for abundant, cheap, clean, reliable electrons is going to be the next great global industry. It has to be. And I call that industry ET. And the central argument of this book is that the country that owns ET is going to be the country with the most national security, economic security, energy security, healthy population, competitive industries, and global respect. I don't know where you all are from, and I wish you all well, but I want that country to be my country, the United States of America. I wish you all well. Because as Jeff Immelt, the head of GE, says in the book, you know, if you want to be big, you've got to be big in big things. If you want to be big, you've got to be big in big things. And there's going to be nothing bigger than ET. And if, from an American point of view, I say to myself, if my country doesn't own ET the way it owned IT, the chance of my girls enjoying the standard of living I had is zero. It is absolutely zero because it's going to be the biggest thing. And we need to be big in that thing. But to do that, you've got to rethink green. You've got to redefine green. And that's another thing I'm trying to do here. I'm a big believer that to name something is to own it. If you can name an issue, you can own that issue. The world is flat. Well, the problem with green in my country is that all these years, it was actually named. The people who owned the definition were the people who hated it. And they named green liberal, tree-hugging, sissy, girly man, unpatriotic, vaguely European. Vaguely European. <laughs> vaguely, vaguely European. You're, you're looking a little European, Mr. Gore. Well, I'm here to tell you, if that's the big challenge of the world, and the next great industry is to answer that problem, Green is geoeconomic, geostrategic, capitalistic, patriotic. Green is the new red, white, and blue. That's what it is. That's what it is. And that's why we have to lead the green revolution. Because this isn't just about electric power. It's about national power. Now, I know also what you're thinking. We're having a green revolution. Having a green revolution, Mr. Friedman. I read about it in the British Airways Sky Miles magazine. <laughs> yeah. I always love that when people say we're having a green revolution. I would say, a green revolution? Us? Having a green revolution? Really? Have you ever been to a revolution where no one got hurt? That's the green revolution. Yeah, and the green revolution we're having. Everybody's a winner. Sure. ExxonMobil's green. I read it in their ad on the op-ed page of the New York Times. <laughs> BP's green. They're beyond petroleum now. <laughs> GM's now green. They got a little yellow cap they put on their flex fuel hummers, you know, to tell you they're flex fuel. Yeah. We're all green. Everybody's a winner. That's not a revolution, friends. That's a party.
we're having a green party. And I have to tell you, it is so much fun because I get invited to all the parties. But it has no connection whatsoever with a revolution. You'll know it's a revolution when somebody gets hurt. Oh, I don't mean physically. I mean, I wrote a history of the IT revolution. It was called The World is Flat. And there was just one rule in the IT revolution, change or die. Change or die. There's a whole group of companies called DEC, Data General, Burroughs, NCR. Oh, they're not with us anymore. They're in that great IT heaven in the sky because they did not change, and so they died. In the Green Revolution, so far, the rule is change your brand or die. Somebody give me a green racing stripe. Somebody change my stationery. Now, you'll know it's a revolution when countries and companies have to change or die. And that's why I introduce a concept in the book. I call it outgreening. The chapter is called Outgreening Al-Qaeda. And it starts with the green hawks in the Pentagon, new group that emerged in the Iraq War, maybe one of the best things that ever came out of the Iraq War. started with a Marine general in Anbar province who called back to the Pentagon one day and said, I need solar power. They said, General Zilmer, you getting a little green on us out there? <laughs> he basically said, no, you morons. I have to supply 10 bases along the Syrian border, 10 outposts. And I'm trucking fuel from Kuwait across Iraq at $20 a gallon, fully burdened price. And if I had solar power, my word's not his, I could outgreen Al-Qaeda. I could take all those trucks off the road. And the best way to defeat an IED is not to be there. I believe that outgreening is going to enter the dictionary somewhere between outflanking and outmaneuvering as the most important source of competitive economic advantage for countries and companies in the world going forward. But that's only when we have the real revolution. Now, this is a bugaboo of mine. I, I do admit. It's, um, I, uh, people send me stuff all the time, as I said. And one of the favorite things that somebody sent me, people know I'm a golfer, was this little study. A recent study found the average American golfer walks about 900 miles a year. Another study found American golfers drink, on average, 22 gallons of alcohol a year. That means that, on average, American golfers get about 41 miles to the gallon. <laughs> kind of makes you proud as an American. <laughs> so I was at my doctor's office one day, and while I was working on the book, and I saw this magazine, Working Mother Magazine. I don't, don't usually read it, but they had a cover story that just caught my eye. The cover story was 205 Easy Ways to Save the Earth. And I saw that, I thought, so easy? <laughs> I went home and Googled for more. I just put in easy ways to save the planet. And these are the book and magazine titles. This is a sample of what came up. Okay? 20 easy ways you can help the Earth. Easy ways to protect our planet. Simple ways to save the Earth. 10 ways to save the Earth. 20 quick and easy ways to save the planet. 5 ways to save the Earth. The 10 easiest ways to green your home. 365 ways to save the Earth. 100 ways you can save the Earth. 1,001 ways to save the planet. 101 ways to heal the Earth. 10 painless ways to save the planet. 21 ways to save the Earth and make more money. 14 easy ways. 
14 easy ways to be an everyday environmentalist, easy ways to go green, 40 easy ways to save the planet, 10 simple ways to save the earth, help save the planet, easy ways to make a difference, 50 ways to save the earth, 50 simple ways to save the earth and get rich trying, top 10 ways to green up your sex life. Um, <laughs> vegan condoms and solar vibrators. I'm not making this up, okay? okay. Um, Innovative ways to save planet Earth, 101 things designers can do to save the Earth, five weird and wacky ways to save the Earth, five ways to save the world, and for those, for those with a messianic streak but who are short of both cash and time, 10 ways to save the Earth and money in under a minute. <laughs> that is not a revolution, friends. That's a party. Because there's one word you should never use about the Green Revolution, and that is easy. Because the scale of this project is so enormous. If we actually got our act together to do this, it would be the greatest industrial project mankind has ever undertaken since the Tower of Babel. The scale is enormous. How do we attack this then? So what is my argument in this book. Um, I'm a capitalist. I believe in markets. I believe the greatest innovation engine the good Lord ever created was the ecosystem of research universities, national laboratories, venture capital, and capital markets, properly regulated. And that ecosystem is the only way out. I am not against Kyoto. Far from it. Uh, I certainly would have voted for it. But if you can get 190 countries to all agree on verifiable reductions of their CO2 emissions, may God bless you and keep you. May God bless you and keep you. But I think waiting for that is a really high-risk strategy. So what I'm basically arguing for in this book is why America should take the lead in doing that. Because I believe if we could actually demonstrate as America that it is possible to get rich, competitive, entrepreneurial, healthy, and respected and secure by leading the ET revolution, so many more countries would follow us by example than will ever do so under the compulsion of a treaty. I'm a huge believer of that. I was just in China for the Olympics, and um, I got to give a talk on green in the Olympic Village. And it was, it was great fun. And young Chinese always ask me this question. They say, Mr. Friedman, you guys got to grow dirty for 150 years. Now it's our turn. And I know where they're coming from. You know, we ate the hors d'oeuvre, we ate the entree, we ate the dessert, we invited them for tea and coffee and said, let's split the bill. Okay? I know where they're coming from. But my answer to young Chinese is this. You are right. You are absolutely right. We grew dirty for 150 years. Now it's your turn. Take your time. Grow as dirty as you want. Because I think, I think my country just needs about five years to invent all the clean power technologies you're going to need as you choke to death. And then we're going to come over here, and we're going to sell them all to you. And we're going to clean your clock in the next great global industry. How do you say clean your clock in Chinese? And that's when I see the headsets adjusting a little bit. It takes about 30 seconds for the translation to get through. <laughs> and they realize what I'm saying. This is going to be the next great global industry. 
I know that for sure. And China's going to need it as much as we need it, as much as Europe's going to need it. You got two choices. You can complain about how fair, unfair it is, or you can own the next great industrial revolution. And I think that is really the challenge. And that's the challenge for us. How do you own it? I think only through innovation are we going to have any chance to truly mitigate climate change. This problem cannot and will not be solved by regulation alone. Regulation is necessary, but it is not sufficient. This is a job for engineers. And that means what we need to do is shape the market, shape the market in a way that will stimulate, not a Manhattan Project, I'm totally against Manhattan Projects, 12 people in Los Alamos are not going to solve this problem. What we need is a market with the right price signals, rules, standards, and regulation. So you get 100,000 innovators in 100,000 garages trying 100,000 things, 1,000 of which will be promising, 100 of which will be way cool, and two of which will be the next green Google and green Microsoft. That is, in my view, our only hope. But how do you shape the market that way? You have to have the right price signals. Without a carbon tax, without a gasoline tax, without renewable portfolio standards, you will never get innovation at scale. It's not enough to just say, let the market do it, as Dick Cheney says. The market will do it. No, the market is shaped by price signals. And unless we have the right price signals, you will not get innovation at scale. Because ET is different from IT in one really fundamental way. The IT revolution was a green field. When Mark Andreessen invented the Netscape browser, there were not three other browsers out there. That is different from ET. Eric. I'm going to use Eric as the example. This is something Nate Lewis taught me, and it's a really important point. Eric's my host here at the LSE. Let's imagine for a second that I invented the world's first cell phone. I invented the world's first cell phone. And I came to my host, Eric, and I said, Eric, I have a phone you can carry in your pocket. What would he say? He'd say, Tom, a phone I can carry in my pocket so I could talk to all my students and they could call me at any hour of night or day? <laughs> wow. I want, that. <laughs> I want that. Eric wants that phone. What would Eric say? He'd say, Tom, a phone I could carry in my pocket would give me a whole new set of functions I don't have. That would change my life. I'll take 10. I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. These phones cost $1,000 each. Say, no problem. A phone I could carry in my pocket would change my life. Sell 10 to him, 10 to her, 10 to him, 10 to her, 10 to him, 10 to her. Oh, you know what happens. You know what happens. Six months later, I'm back at the LSE. My phone's now only 500 bucks. It's half the size and weight because I'm down the innovation learning curve heading for the China price, the price at which my phone will scale in India and China. Now I'm on a roll. I love this LSE. I come back a year later, call my pal Eric on his cell phone. Now it's only 50 bucks. He's got a clip to his ear. Eric, it's Tom. Got another deal for you. Remember that cell phone I sold you? You like that, right? Tom, changed my life. Got another deal for you. See all the lights in your auditorium at the LSE? I'm going to power them by solar energy. It is going to cost you, though, an extra 100 pounds a month. What would Eric say? Eric would say, uh, Tom, 
Remember that phone you sold me? Now, that, that changed my life. In case you haven't noticed, we at the LSE, we already have lights. And we really don't care where the photons come from. That's the problem. ET to emerge always has to compete against an existing, cheap, dirty alternative. So unless you have someone shaping the market, making that existing, cheap, dirty alternative not cheap, and the solar lights less expensive, you are never going to get innovation at scale. Does anyone here think we in America ever would have had an Apollo space program to put a man on the moon? We ever would have gotten that if Southwest Airlines already flew to the moon? Do you think NASA ever would have gotten funded if Southwest Airlines already flew to the moon and gave away free peanuts? I don't think so. And you're not going to get an ET revolution at scale. And I keep coming back to that, folks. This is a scale project. If you don't have scale, you have a hobby. I like hobbies. I used to build model airplanes. I don't try to change the climate as a hobby. If you don't have scale, you have nothing. And if you will not get scale without changing the price signals, it's just not going to happen. And that's why I ask people like Jeff Immel, the head of GE in the book, I say, Jeff, why are you guys not all in on clean power? You're in, but you're not all in. And he gives a very, very simple answer. He says, Tom, I'm not going to make a 40-year multi-billion dollar bet on a 15-minute price signal. I'm not going to make a four. I just saw oil go from 147 to 87 to 127, back to 77. And you think I'm going to go to my shareholders and say, let's go all in on oil. Oh, that's not going to happen. Without a price signal, it's not going to happen. And that's government's role here to shape the market. And that really gets me to the conclusion of this talk. I sat with Mr. Immelt once. We did a dialogue for his management team. And at one point, he just sort of threw up his hands and said, you know, Tom, if only, if only we had a president who would just set the right price, set the right standards, set the right regulations. Everyone will moan and whine for a month. And then the whole American ecosystem of innovation will adapt and take on this project. I thought about it afterwards, and I called him. I said, Jeff, what you're really saying is, if only we could be China for a day. Just, just one day. Would it be so bad? If only we had a government that was focused and organized from the top and could just implement things from the top down. So the penultimate chapter of the book is called China for a Day, but not for two. <laughs> and it's my fantasy of what we would actually do if, on climate and energy if we could actually be as focused as China, if we could be China for a day. Now, alas, we can't be China for a day. And you know, I love China. I love the Chinese people. But I want to be America. <clears throat> My favorite quote in the book, when we leave Iraq, it will be the biggest transfer of air conditioners ever known to mankind. It's from Dan Nolan, the head of the Army power team. Unfortunately, we can't be China for a day. As I say, we need to be America. 
And that's why the last chapter of the book is called A Democratic China or a Banana Republic. Because that's what we're going to be. We are either going to get our democracy to work and take on this challenge and do it with the same focus, persistence, stick to legitimacy that China does through its system, only we're going to do it through our democratic system. Or we're going to be a banana republic. That's what we're going to be. Oh, oh, no, no, not that Latin American kind. No, 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 the way they use banana in the utility business. You know, you've heard of NIMBY, not in my backyard, that, you know. Well, in the utility business, they use the term banana. Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. We are either going to be a democratic China and do this in the same focused way that China does. Or we're going to, when it comes to clean tech, build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. Now, I don't want to leave you on a down note because um, it's not my style. And, you know, pessimists are usually right, um, but optimists are usually wrong. But all the great change in history was done by optimists. So on this issue, you have to at least be a sober optimist. And so let me end by just reading the last few graphs of the book. The book actually ends with a eulogy. Uh, the eulogy is for Dana Meadows, who was a great environmental teacher at Dartmouth, who died in 2001. And this is an excerpt from her eulogy at her memorial service written by Amory Lovins, the founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute. A biologist, perhaps C.O. Wilson, noted that bees, ants, and termites, though not very smart individually, display high intelligence collectively. And then he added, people seem just the opposite. Dana Meadows was an exception. She was one of those promising specimens that are turning up more and more often in the search for intelligent life on Earth. One of those much higher primates whose love, logic, radical stubbornness, courage, and passion awaken the rest of us to our ability and our responsibility to save the world. She wrote three years ago, by nature I'm an optimist. To me all glasses are half full. Yet she didn't shrink from reporting bad news, always blended with encouragement about how to do better. She treated the future as choice not fate. And she defined with luminous clarity how to do as one sometimes must what is necessary. She shared Rene Dubois' view that despair is a sin. So when asked if we have enough time to prevent catastrophe, she'd always say, we have exactly enough time starting now. Two years ago, when emailing an unusually somber column about events that made her weep, she had added the following note as counterpoint. A CEO was having to babysit for his young daughter. He was trying to read the paper, but was totally frustrated by the constant interruptions when he came across a full page of the NASA photo of the Earth from space. He got a brilliant idea. He ripped it up into small pieces and told his child to put the Earth back together. He then settled in for what he expected to be a good half hour of peace and quiet. But only a few minutes had gone by before the child appeared at his side with a big grin on her face. You're finished already, he asked. Yes, she replied. How did you do it? Well, I saw there was a picture of a person on the other side. So when I put the person together, the earth got put together too. There is so much to admire in that eulogy. The conviction that the future is our choice, not our fate. That when you put people together, you put the planet together. That there is nothing in the universe quite as powerful as six billion minds wrapping around one problem. And most of all, the best expression of sober optimism I've ever heard, we have 
exactly enough time starting now. Friends, I have to tell you, it, this is a cliche, but we are, we are in a really difficult moment. I, as an American, I feel this election is without question the most important election in my lifetime. We really need to get this right. We need to get back to work, in my case, on our country and on our planet. The hour is late. The stakes could not be higher. The project could not be harder. And the payoff could not be greater. And we have exactly enough time starting now. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Thomas, for a very interesting and also, I thought, very witty uh, talk. We have uh, just a little bit more, uh, um, about 15 minutes for a question and answer session. Now, the way this is going to work, some of you like to give lengthy statements. Uh, these I will cut short. Uh, I will allow statements if they're very short, but I do prefer questions. So please put your hands up if you would like to uh, question. Yes, Nick, please, we'll start with you. No, I want to do one at a time. Okay, just, good. Go ahead. Did you all hear that? Um, uh, he wants to know if I'll be signing my book after, and I will. And thank you, Nick, for asking. <laughs> um, how do we get collaboration across countries you know, on this issue? Real collaboration. I know just what you're asking. Me. And you know, to get there first, we in America, we need to have a government that really takes this issue seriously. And we haven't had that um, for the last eight years. And so it's funny. I, I, I gave an interview yesterday with a, uh, a journalist from the Netherlands. And uh, it was a very nice back and forth exchange. And then at the end, he said, you know, there was a review of your book in our paper. I said, oh, that's great. What did they say? Did they like it? Well, the reviewer said, yeah, it's, you know, intelligent, well-written. But in the end, she concluded, she, she concluded it was a fairy tale. I said, oh, really, a fairy tale? Why? She said, well, you concluded that the only answer is leadership, that we have, we have political leadership. And she, she didn't think that was sufficient. I thought, geez, I, I'm, I should have said, the answer will come from Mars. I, I didn't, I, Martians will do this, you know. That's the really frustrating thing about this issue for me, is that when I got all the way through the book, it does come down to that. And it's why I have this motto, change your leaders, not your light bulbs. Because without leaders, leaders write rules. Rules give you scale. And leaders also shape public opinion. 
And so for eight years, we've had leadership in our country that really has fought this issue. And unless we change that, we can't be up to collaborate this way unless we stand up vertically, you know. And so, yeah, I have two thoughts on that. You know, how do you get that? Well, the truth is what we need is a, we, need a, we need a million people on the mall calling for a cap and trade or a carbon tax. That's how things change in America, when people, when politicians see aggrieved constituencies and, and they respond. And uh, if that does, the problem with climate change is the community most affected by it hasn't been born yet. And the community that's going to be most affected are not born yet. It's unlike any other political issue. Not like women's suffrage, not like civil rights. And so we have to be stewards for that unborn generation. Getting people to do that really is a leadership question, both defining the issue, the opportunity, and the danger. And I'm only hopeful that the next president will be willing, ready, and able to take on that challenge. And what I'm trying to do in this book is to show how people that this is, this is an opportunity. This is not just a threat. Because if you don't widen the aperture of this, I'm afraid, it'll never get scale politics. I tell people, this book avowedly speaks out of both sides of its mouth, avowedly and proudly. It says to Dick Cheney, Dick, I've got a plan to make America stronger. Oh, and that stuff Al Gore's talking about, we'll get that as a byproduct. To environmentalists, I say, I have a plan to make America greener. And that stuff Cheney's worried about, we'll get that as a byproduct. Because if we don't have scale, if this is just about something the left is interested in, it's, it's never going to go anywhere. And so that's, I can't think, Nick, yet about this, the horizontal collaboration, because we're not even here. I don't think as a country. And the chapter I like to talk about most when I'm on college campuses, um, my, one of my favorites in the book is called If It Isn't Boring, It Isn't Green. Because everyone wants to be an eco-star. And God bless Al Gore, we need eco-stars. And wouldn't you all love to win a Nobel Prize and an Academy Award and make a movie everybody wants? And thank God we have people like Gore to make this issue a global issue. But at the end of the day, the real ET revolution is about who writes the rules, who writes the standards for emissions, who writes the standards for refrigerators, who writes the rules. And I can only tell you what I tell my own daughter. ExxonMobil, ExxonMobil's not on Facebook. They're in your face. ExxonMobil, uh, they don't have a chat room. They're in the cloakroom. It's the cloakroom where the rules get written. So get out of Facebook and get into somebody's face. Because if you are not there where the rules get written, you will not have any impact on this cause. This is all about who writes the rules. And so. I totally agree with you. Know, ultimately, this is I, what I want to see is an Earth You know, we had a space race with the Soviets. Who could be the first to put a man on the moon? And what we need, of course, is an Earth race with China in collaboration where we see who can create the most ET technology so men and women can stay on Earth. That's really what we need. But to even start that race, we need a president. Imagine if, if Obama wins. I mean, just, I, and I don't know who's going to win. I'm not allowed to, we're not allowed as columnists to endorse candidates. You'd never know that from reading the op-ed page in the New York Times. <laughs> but, um, uh, but never mind, we're not supposed to, so I won't do that. Um, but I tried to think, and this is really apropos to your point, because what if Obama wins 
He takes the oath of office. He gets on one bicycle. Michelle gets on another. The two get, get on two tricycles, and they bike to the White House. Do you know what impact that would have? We, remember, we've had a president who, for the last eight years, couldn't get the word even conservation out of his mouth. Okay, <laughs> I mean, imagine if you had a president actually leading on this issue, not fighting. You don't understand. Do you know how many Sarah Palin glasses were sold the day after her speech? Okay, <laughs> 200,000 pairs of glasses that she wears were sold after her speech. Do you know what happened if an American president started biking around? Of course, that's a trite issue, but the point is it's got to start there. I would be lying to you if I told you we were in a position to collaborate with anybody for the last eight years because we weren't serious. And ultimately, you're right, but we got to first stand up before we can you know, go sideways. OK, let's take another question. The, the, the girl in the back towards the wall. Yes, please. P stay, stay, say your name, please. Oh, my name is Molly. And I was just curious, if this whole room weren't LSE and related people, but um, everyone who works for ExxonMobil, what would you say to them? Um, because if the resolution causes death, then they're the dead ones. Right. So what do you tell them? Um, actually, it's a very good question. I actually, on my book tour, gave a lecture um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma City to almost all energy people. Okay. And what I'd say to them is, oh, no, it doesn't have to be death at all. Just think of yourself as an energy company, not an oil company. That's, that's all I want from Exxon. I don't want them to commit suicide. And we're going to need oil for a long time. No, I'm serious. You know, we're going to need oil for a long time, whatever happens, if not only for fertilizer or, or plastics or, or, or you know, whatever. We're going to need it for a long time. But think of yourself at least as an energy company. And don't make people stupid about climate change by funding bad science. I've written that in my column. I've said it to them face to face. So that's what I would tell them. Think of yourself as being in the energy business. You have tremendous innovative capacity. So you know, that's really, I actually spoke last week for the American Gas Association. The AGA's national meeting. What I talk about, I talked about, um, uh, uh, I'm a little jet lagged. What did I talk about? I talked about um, uh, the, the um, utility decoupling plus. Okay. Um, I didn't know. And the only thing I knew about utilities before I started this book was when I landed on the electric company in Monopoly. Okay. All right. And should I pay $150 to buy it or not? That was all I thought electricity, like most people, came out of the socket in the wall. And the thing that I've enjoyed doing most in this book is actually learning how a utility works. If you want to be a green revolutionary, the first thing you need to do is understand the economic model of utilities, because they are at the center of this whole thing. And we're not all going to have solar panels on a roof and have distributed power. You need to know how a utility works. And the real revolution that's happening, our utilities for 100 years, were $5 all-you-can-eat electron buffets. That's what they were. That's what they were designed for. And they made more and more money depending on how many electrons you ate and came in with others to eat. Your parents were right when they came into your room when you left the lights on and said, do you own stock in the electric company? Because you were helping the electric company's stock when you left the lights on. Well, what California has done is this phenomenon called decoupling plus. 
where they basically changed the whole transaction between the utility and its customer. Utilities in California are now paid for how much energy they get you to save off a baseline of last year, rather than how much energy they get you to consume. Actually, the leaders of that are the gas utilities. It has to do with technicalities in their business model, that they really benefit from that. That's where the revolution is. And so you got to work with these people. They're, they're, they're not evil people. They're, they're, they've funded and powered the, the growth of our standard of living. But there's no reason, if you can't, you can't change the incentives, you can actually get them to power this in a different way. Okay, let's take a question from uh, yes. above. Yes, the, the lady in the, in the very back, Red. Yes. Can you, can you use the micro, please? Hi, uh, my name is Liz. I was wondering if you're worried about the prospects for the green revolution in the context of a global recession. Yeah, you have to be. It's really this, there's no good time for a global recession. This is the worst time. Like after eight years of the Bush administration, you know, really, you know, really fighting this issue, right when we're on the eve of a change and hopefully getting someone who really would be ready to lead this, how aggressively, I don't know, but certainly not fight it, we get hit with a, with a global recession that's going to make it very hard to get the necessary price signals in place. So I'm really down to, I know we're not going to get a gasoline tax, I don't think we're going to get a carbon tax, but maybe we get a floor, you know, tell people, look, gasoline went to $4 a gallon, really started to change people's behavior, let's set a floor price there and say it will never go below that. We're not going to get anything on top of that in the recession we have right now. And the other thing I've really been advocating is we need to green the bailout. By the way, you here in the UK need to green your bailout. You know, we had a, we had a huge uh, boom, bubble, and bust around railroads in America in the 19th century. Railroad stocks were the dot-coms. Everyone went out and bought railroad stocks. Most of them actually went bankrupt. But what that bubble left us was with an incredible national railroad system that allowed everyone to ride for less and ship freight for less. It was a great legacy. Uh, in the 20th century, we had the dot-com boom, bubble, and bust. Most people who bought pets.com lost money, okay? But it left us with an amazing internet fiber optic infrastructure that actually gave birth to Google and propelled Microsoft and a whole lot of other companies uh, into the IT leadership. The really sad thing about the financial services bubble, in America's case, is that it's gonna leave us with a bunch of half-built condos in Florida and dead derivative contracts that nobody understands. And what's really bad, for that bubble, we borrowed all the money for it from China. So it is really important that if we're going to bail out people, and now I'm talking about a stimulus package, not the bank rescue plan, that we do it in a way that will drive us toward the ET revolution. That we don't just pass out $800 checks to people that they can, they can use at Walmart. Um, that we actually do big infrastructure projects that might lay the foundation for a real ET revolution. So that's about the only silver lining I can see, and, and that's really what I've been advocating. Okay, let's take another question from uh, above. Uh, yes, please. Yes. Hi, my name is Paulette. Um, thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, um, you, you mentioned your com conversation with um, your Chinese friend who said, well, okay, if we're not going to innovate in, in new industry, then apparently you are going to take it over and we'll be buying it from you. So I'm referring to, to that moment. 
Um, what would you say to all those people who are not living in a nation who can potentially compete on that level, but who are actually living in Africa, Latin America, also largely consuming countries who will actually end up, you know, being more expensive? Sure. Yeah, be expensive for them to well, participate in that. It's. I, I believe it is both our strategic necessity and moral responsibility. Uh, America, the countries, America, EU. Uh, Japan, who have the resources to invent these technologies and then collaborate uh, with China and India and other countries to get them to scale. But I think we're the ones who have to take the lead. I mean, I, I really believe that. I believe it's a strategic imperative, an economic imperative, and a moral imperative. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to require, as, as, uh, as Nick suggested, a collaboration you know, between uh, really expensive cutting-edge innovation um, and then using manufacturing platforms like India and China to get it down to a price where it can truly scale. And um, other countries that don't, aren't part of that uh, food chain uh, will I, be direct beneficiaries, of course, you know, once, the, once the price gets down. But I think that's where the main uh, energy is going to have to happen. So I, I'm, I'm all for that. Okay, uh, unfortunately, we are running on a very tight uh, schedule mm. here. We've we got to uh, bring this um, uh, to, to a close. Before I thank uh, Thomas again, can I make two announcements? First of all, Tom is here, of course, in part uh, to sign and, well, sell, and then uh, sign, second, sign uh, his, his book. Actually, two books are outside for sale. One is uh, the, the book he uh, just uh, introduced to you. The other one is uh, The World is, is Flat. Um, you can buy it outside. Thomas will stay here to sign the books. There will be an orderly queue, uh, hopefully not too long. Uh, please de don't detain him too long because we want to have him for a dinner later on as well. Um, you can detain me for a while. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, other announcement that I would like to make, uh, the LSE Environment Initiatives Network, uh, which is open to alumni, staff, postgrads, uh, final year students, has some application forms outside there. They, uh, they organize also some very interesting uh, events. Let me uh, conclude by uh, thanking uh, Tom uh, very much again. And thank you all for coming.